Hello. Hello! You're listening to Green Minds at Imperial College. A podcast that explores topics related to climate change and sustainability. I'm Adina Molnar. And I'm Adam Eisenberg, your host for this show. We're two master's students at Imperial College Business School in London. Each episode, we are sitting down with guest speakers to talk about a specific topic within the field of sustainability and their insights on how to make an impact. We hope you enjoy the show. In our first episode, we discussed how individual consumption, consumption choices, including diets, have a direct impact on the environment. In today's episode, we'll be talking about how changing diets affects our identity and social interactions. We dive into the social aspect of diets, touching on plant-based diets, vegetarianism and veganism, and how diets shape our relationship with friends, family, and animals. To do this, we brought on Dr. Richard Carmichael. So welcome, Richard. Hi, thanks for having me. <laughs> thanks for coming on. Uh, Richard is a research associate at Imperial College London uh, within the Center for Environmental Policy, working on consumer technology and policy-related energy issues. He is also currently on Secondment as a senior analyst at the Committee on Climate Change, contributing to social science analysis and policy recommendations for behavior lifestyle change uh, to support net zero emission scenarios, including diet, transport, and household energy. Richard's wider research interests are in action-oriented and policy-relevant research on promoting sustainable behavior, lifestyles, and well-being, with particular interest in energy, food, and technology. He is an expert in social psychology of food and dietary change, including meat, dairy, vegetarian, vegan identity. Richard is also a chartered psychologist, holds a Master's of Arts Honors in Psychology from Dundee, Master's of Science in Critical Social Psychology from Lancaster, a PhD in Social Sciences from Loughborough, apologies if I butchered that one, <laughs> and uh, a PG certificate in coaching psychology and career coaching uh, from UEL. That is a very, very impressive list of certifications. We can see that you've done a lot in action-oriented research as well as policy and sort of promoting sustainability. How did you get interested and was there like an aha moment when you knew you wanted to pursue this path? Uh, in policy or specifically diets? More just in general sustainable lifestyles. Um, well, I guess I've, from an early uh, interest, obviously, that led me into psychology. I've had a, um, a kind of long-term personal interest in, in vegetarianism, went vegetarian when I was 16. It's not, it's not untypical for psychologists to sort of bring in their personal interests mm -hmm. into their work, but um, it took a while, I guess, for me to end up working on diet. So it was at the sort of master's level, I did a study of um, which compared TV adverts for meat uh, with uh, meat replacement products like corn and looked at social identity there to see how the advertising was sort of using identity to um, attract um, and market their products, basically. And then I went on to do a PhD on um, uh, with, with people rather than with kind of cultural texts uh, such as adverts. So I, I was uh, speaking with... Um, people in the process of turning vegetarian or turning veg vegan uh, or, or somewhere around, you know, in between, because people don't always fall into neatly into those categories. Um, so it was actually kind of lived experience and, and kind of biographical case study sort of approach um, um, as opposed to kind of looking at cultural uh, artifacts. So this was quite a while ago. So since then, actually, uh, the... Uh, discussion around diet has, has got a lot more prominent in terms of sustainability. Yeah, for um, sure. Although that's been around for a, a while, there's a lot more uh, momentum behind that that topic um, in terms of low impact diets. 
yeah, that's the sort of background to um, uh, what I've been working on there. And, and I'm very happy to be working on um, diet again now for the Committee on Climate Change. And um, it's, yeah, it's a really good time, uh, given the sort of momentum that there appears and there clearly is uh, culturally for a shift to uh, embrace more plant-based eating. Yeah, we'll, we'll have to see what happens in the next um, couple of years. If it's anything like what happened in the last couple of years, it could be uh, a very interesting time. Yeah, there are a lot of reports coming out just in terms of sustainability and linking it to diets. Even last week there was a report yeah. um, by the Lancelot Commission. Yeah. Can maybe discuss that in a little while? Um, so just to go back a little bit in terms of identity and culture and diets, what are the cultural meanings of food and diet and how does diet influence identity at all? Uh, big question. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> big, big question. I mean, there's a lot of work being done on that area uh, for a long time. Uh, social anthropology and the kind of semiotic analysis of, of uh, these sort of cultural meanings, um, like Roland Barthes' sort of writings about how steak and chips was a sort of not just a meal, but a symbol of French national identity. Uh, there's, there's lots and lots of work on um, how food isn't just food really and that it has all these signifiers and meanings and associations uh, for um, often for identity and that's one of the reasons I thought looking at TV adverts for food with a specific focus on identity was was worth worth doing also because I, advertising that's one of the main levers that identity uh, advertising uses is, is identity and appealing to viewers based on who they are and what kind of people they are so yeah a huge amount of literature on on food and its cultural significances it, specifically with meat and vegetarianism it's essentially sort of revolves around how meat is very very valued you know the probably the most prized food stuff but also there's an ambivalence to that so you know you know for long historical you know for as long as far back as you want to go meat has been extremely prized and it's also associated with masculinity uh, who gets the lion's share of the food? You know, you already sort of you starting to sort of hear connotations about sort of you know strength and mm. predators and hunters and stuff, and you can kind of overplay that a bit. And it's it may sound at times if you really dig deep into the all the possible connotations around gender, for example, it may sound well that's a bit too much. And most of the time it is, but there are times and contexts and, and situations where actually these these sort of meanings do become uh, consciously or even pre-consciously sort of relevant and do play a part. And um, again, in advertising, you can see how they are sometimes blatantly or less blatantly ap appealing to some sort of aura, as they sometimes call it in advertising, aura or meaning or connotations around meat in order to sell something. And it's interesting that last year, I believe, um, there's uh, new regulations on standards basically um, controlling which gender stereotypes can be used in advertising on TV. Wow. Um, so that's an interesting development. To go back to your original question, mm -hmm. whatever the meanings of around food and specifically high impact climate damaging foods are, do I think one of the interesting questions is do those meanings impede change? You know, are they, are they so powerful and are they um, a barrier to people changing their dietary practices and I think they are and hopefully uh, as the momentum gathers and and it becomes no, more normal that the power of those meanings and um, the hold they have over people some people some of the time uh, will get weaker and um, not peddling 
gender stereotypes when you're trying to sell things, especially meat and other kind of climate damaging um, food. Yeah, would be a, a good step. Is, is this a UK regulation or is it in going on in, in other countries as well? Um, I'm not aware of outside of the UK. Uh, there are some interesting case studies um, outside of the UK to do with um, moving towards a plant-based diet, uh, but this one is, uh, I, I was referring to UK regulations. I'm not sure the extent to which it will be enforced or applied. Why is it that meat is such a picked up topic and why is it why does it influence your identity so much well i suppose there is something different in in the sense of you know very long you know history and prehistorical almost meanings of, around meat because of the, the 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 fact that it's 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 an animal that's been killed and it used to be alive and that has attractive qualities to it um sometimes certainly historically uh, it had a sort of vitality and a power and you know associations with uh, energy and kind of strength, uh, and it does obviously have, uh, certainly in a evolutionary perspective, it obviously has a very uh, high uh, nutritional value, especially in a, in a, in a context of food, scar food scarcity. Uh, clearly, we're not in a uh, context of food scarcity um, in the, um, the the Western world, and that has led to you know obesity crises and people. You know, some people argue that we're kind of hardwired to go for high calorific value foods and of course now that we have plenty of them all the time you know we're not so good sometimes at um, adapting to this new situation and we overeat but um meat clearly did have a high value to um to people for a long long time um historically and um some of those values are not just nutritional but they're sort of more cultural and sociological anthropological anthropological mm -hmm. and psychological and there is you know a kind of a darker side to those meanings, uh, uh, to those associations around meat. Oh, it, it, there's a real profound ambivalence there about whether it's a good thing that it, it re uh, meat uh, reflects something that you or someone has uh, hunted and killed and that kind of side of things. There's, you know, other arguments on that topic which suggest that we're uh, we have for some time been undergoing a sort of a, a civilizing process where we value those less, those darker sides than we perhaps used to and that we are it's less palatable uh less acceptable and you know it's reflected in the way meat is um marketed basically there, there'll be less blatant less blatant uh signs of the origins of where the meat came from and obviously depends on the particular market but you will see less whole animals hanging in butcher shops than you did when i even i was a kid and yeah, there's two sides to that as well, but you know that that is a, a sort of a marker of how our attitudes towards where meat comes from and what it what it involves have 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 changed and, and perhaps still are changing. Yeah, so that would be you know with with globalization as well, right? All these different types of products and foods being shipped around the world. When I think about sometimes cultural identity or stereotypes and things of what certain countries or people would eat, you know, if there if it was just local, maybe it would you know, stay how it was, but globalization is kind of creating the the value of meat as well in, in places that maybe it wasn't so important in the past. Yeah. You also talked about how we don't really see as much that where meat comes from, or it's, it's not obvious when you go to the supermarket. And I think even maybe when you're a kid, you don't really associate meat as, as the animal. This kind of comes down to the dilemma of moral superiority and the dilemma of abstinence. Do you mind just explaining these two concepts? Yeah, I mean, we definitely are getting into the area of people's ob 
objections and what they whether they find it acceptable that meat is coming from uh, some, an animal that's been killed. So um, it, when I did my PhD uh, with the uh, new or aspiring vegetarians and vegans, and uh, they kept diaries, and we um, which they shared with me, and we talked about um, the diaries, and we talked sort of every few weeks over quite a long time. For some of them, it was over a year. Some of the things that came out of there was the, that work, which is qualitative, obviously kind of analysis of these these texts, was essentially the the idea that being or becoming vegetarian entailed certain dilemmas in terms of your identity, and and managing those was something new for for people who were moving into the, the territory of, of of abstaining from meat or dairy. So these sort of new new sort of dilemmas of how you be, how you, how you do being vegetarian, as some of the awkward phrasing that's used in, in that sort of uh, discursive psychology puts it, um, were around how do you communicate why you are vegetarian and, and justify to some degree, you know, why you're bothering, why you're doing it, yet at the same time not be sort of seen as attacking people who don't do that. So there's this, this, especially if you look at this sort of social identity theory literature, which suggests that um, one of the important features of showing that you belong to a certain group is to conform to the kind of core behaviours of that group and also to criticise members of the our group. So that kind of also kind of underlined this, this issue of uh, self-esteem through you know being a vegetarian and yet not being too critical of other people. And because of the the moral motivation behind a lot of people's shift to a meat-free diet. There was this real awkwardness that people often reported. As one, one of them put it, there's just no no nice way to talk about it. So you say, well, I'm being, someone asks you why a vegetarian, you say, well, maybe mumble something about for the animals or something, and you, <laughs> you feel that if you go too far, they, you know, you may risk sort of the other person feeling uh, attacked. And there's this sort of stereotype that, that could come into play, you know, sort of, in a cultural currency, which makes this, you know, worse in some ways, that, there's, that vegetarians are sort of preachy and sort of superior and on their moral high horse or whatever, and that people are, are aware that they may be seen as being like that, and so they'll, they'll, the vegetarians or vegans would be sort of wary of uh, and try to avoid being preachy. So that's a sort of a dilemma of, well, you, you want to say, well, that you are motivated for a certain reason, and if it's moral, you, you want to communicate that. But at the same time, you don't want to be preachy. Uh, so the, the, sort of they would, that would be reflected in how they would express themselves. And um, I think you mentioned the other, um, one of the other major dilemmas was um, how to abstain from eating meat without appearing to be some stereotype of an abstemious, uh, strict, miserable, boring <laughs> kind of straight-laced um, self you know, sort of a self-privation sort of attitude of like, I either don't have the kind of normal, natural uh, desires to enjoy your food or you're like denying them in some way. So again, it may, say, it may seem really sort of stark when you put it like that, but you can see that um, to some degree in, in the people's accounts of their interactions with people that they need in some ways to abstain although they can manage when they don't if there's a lapse, but even, even lapsing is a sort of an interesting discursive kind of activity to use that discourse of lapsing because it, it contains what you've done to a, a moment and it, it creates this idea that you have momentarily lapsed rather than you've completely 
stop being vegetarian, then you have to start again. It's sort of it's interesting the effects of that idea of lapsing has. But you have to, in some ways, um, uh, abstain from eating meat, but hopefully avoid being seen as the sort of negative sides of someone who is uh, abstaining. Uh, and again, you know, people can. It very much depends on the context, obviously, and, and the person you're with. And, and this may be completely not uh, salient or relevant at, uh, for most of the time, but there will be some contexts where this can be there. It's a thing in, 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 the, in the room between you and, and people, you know, if they're being a bit aggressive or something, they may specifically uh, refer to it. And I've, I've heard, you know, many cases where people have sort of been, vegetarians have been sort of challenged that, oh, you're, you're really quite boring, aren't you? Or, you know go on enjoy yourself yeah that kind of you know stereotypes i can see where you you show up to someone's house for dinner and they've kind of you know made this meal and all of it not all of it but a lot of it includes meat and then you don't want to come off as rude mm. uh, or ungrateful um and i can see where uh in, in at least in my life i'm not a vegetarian but i can see where that would conflict with maybe some of the older generation as well mm. you know because you know, maybe food wasn't something you were picky about. Um, and then also in terms of, of having, you know, the right manners and being a guest at someone's house is kind of a yeah. complicated thing that I'm sure yeah. comes into, uh, it, you know, went into your studies as well. Yeah, I mean, a couple of things that are quite interesting. The manners thing and being polite is so interesting. And there's, there's so many layers to this. And um, in drawing out certain features like dilemmas that are managed in account giving, um, it should also be borne in mind that there's, there's almost always lots of other stuff going on at the same time. And, um, yeah, the idea of kind of being impolite and breaking the sort of social etiquette rules is quite interesting. And, you know, there'll be times when vegetarians will, you know, perhaps secretly kind of enjoy transgressing those sort of expectations and, you know, deliberately, you know, maybe enjoy uh, transgressing the sort of what what's expected and, and make a point of saying no I'm I'm going to refuse your your sort of uh your 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 food but um and but that also applies to to meat eaters this is a transgression obviously of certain not perhaps the sort of dominant ideology of which is you know is accepting of meat eating um but um that there is a sort of a again a sort of a very ambivalent potential for a lot of ambivalence there about breaking rules and whether you enjoy that or you're scared of doing that and there's sanctions are put on you because you're being you're breaking some rule but again there's a, sort of two sides to almost everything and the other the other thing you mentioned was a sort of the older generation yeah that there is the idea that you're upsetting a relationship there perhaps with a, a an older generation your parent or something who may cook for you and that's a kind of an important thing they do to sort of show their love for you and their relationship with you with, that they have with you and if you turn up one day and you say no I, I don't eat meat anymore then that's sort of threatening the relationship because one of the things it's how it's expressed is through cooking and eating and you're you've kind of messed with that yeah. and so it, it points to how identity it could be you know mother daughter father son or whatever which are identities to some you know, in some ways, that they're dependent, they're codependent, and they're, they're sort of a mutually supporting and reciprocal relationship there. So you can't just walk around being a son all by yourself. You need a supporting cast, really, 
and that goes for, for many identities as a supporting role someone takes and for a mother who you know take a uh, fairly kind of stereotypical example who enjoys cooking for their relatives if they suddenly sort of don't play their role then they can't it, it sort of um, challenges and threatens their conception of themselves and how they how they behave and uh, what it is to be uh, to have that relationship and have that identity so those sorts of things come in as well you, you know it's not just about your behavior you're destabilizing this relationship and this the, the identities that you both have there uh, and I could see that again in, in um, some of the material that I, that I collected that some um, people sensed that in changing their, their diet they were threatening the relationship they had with a, a sister or a parent or something. Yeah, um, for me, definitely visiting my grandma's house around the time I turned vegetarian was not an easy, an easy thing to do. But it's interesting to see that as she was not, she wasn't really exposed to um, plant-based diets at all. And she, as, as this thing kind of developed, then she saw that it wasn't just the diet that I was on. Uh, because in the beginning, that's how she perceived it, as diet in a sense that, you know, weight loss and health and um, not necessarily for other reasons. And then both of my sister turned vegetarian and then it was a crisis what to cook. Uh, but then she actually adjusted and, and found recipes and kind of maybe even tried understanding where we were coming from. And that was very interesting to see within a few months how she shifted based on our requirements and it doesn't really seem like an obstacle now that's a really important point i'm glad you mentioned actually because uh, most of what i said is probably has a fairly kind of downbeat tone to it so, <laughs> you know it's all difficult and challenging and there's dilemmas that you never had to face before and consequences and you know knock-on effects with your relationships but yeah the kind of theoretical perspective i was taking for this work was broadly a rhetorical social psychological approach kind of very much based on an analysis of discourses and texts. But the, uh, the rhetorical bit basically means that the argumentative nature of conversation and everyday life, and um, clearly there's often justifications and criticism, but also it's kind of marked by flexibility. And, you know, as, you, as your example shows, there's almost always a way of turning it around and, and dealing with it in, in a variety of ways. And your um, grandmother yeah. Yeah, um, obviously found a way to um, carry on, you know, yeah, being the absolutely. person she was. And actually that reflects that she was putting a lot into the relationship. And, you know, it wasn't, it's not, not all bad news. I certainly wouldn't want to suggest <laughs> that uh, these are all interesting because, and then they're all um, just challenges. So kind of breaking away from the social and psychological um, aspects of diet is is there a healthier healthiest diet from it like a pure human standpoint and then from a environmental side so what's kind of your thoughts on that well i'm going to um caveat everything i say on the health and the um the sustainability side of things by saying that um, you know my training is not not so much in those areas but i think what's interesting is we know enough about the health um side of diet with respect to animal-based food and enough, we know enough about the um, greenhouse gas, gas emission side of livestock and animal-based foods to be able to set goals as a society and individuals. And it very, the, um, well, both are complicated when you get down to the 
finer details. And with emissions, for example, it gets very complicated. Not only the food stuff, say beef compared to um, potatoes or beef compared to pork or something, but you know the, the, the farming practices and the the, 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 low, the sort of which region that you're farming in and all this sort of stuff. But um, on the emission side, there is clear um, evidence uh, and there's quite a lot of work going on and more and more the Food Carbon Research Network are very good on that and um, even the, the Lancet um, stuff is tying up the health and the emissions and you know a lot of good work showing that there is effectively a hierarchy which is not oversimplifying and beef is by far the worst in terms of greenhouse gas emissions. I mean, it's complicated because you have to consider the, the alternative uses of the land, which is currently being used for livestock and all, all the rest of it. But it, you, you can still see a, a definite hierarchy. So beef and then lamb some way down, um, pork, chicken, fish, dairy, that sort of thing. So you can certainly look at the complexities, but there is a clear uh, message basically for someone who wants or a, um, a government that wants to um, encourage a shift away from those foods which would deliver uh, carbon reductions. And on the health side, um, again, you know, there's an awful lot of work. The government obviously has, has for a long time now uh, advocated and uh, recommended cutting down as a society on a sort of a, a, a sort of population level, a, a public health sort of level. As, as a nation, we are still eating way too much animal fat, which has consequences for disease and early death, uh, which also costs the NHS a lot of money, as well as the sort of consequences for individuals and families. So again, there's sort of saturated fat and uh, the links to cancer are kind of coming up in the, the, the literature and paint a pretty clear picture. One thing I could add from a more sort of social science point of view is it's quite interesting the way the health concerns and possibly the emission side, the environment side, are wrapped up with other kind of notions about stuff which is, from a scientific point of view, outside of that. But for example, from, from my experience, I went vegan actually during my PhD where I was kind of immersed in all these accounts from people who are making the transition or trying to. It was probably hard not to. <laughs> yeah, well, I was kind of beaten down by the, 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 the soundness of their arguments. Um, but it was interesting that I guess one of the things that tipped me over really was this kind of mixing of yeah, the science of health and diet with beliefs about what was natural. Because someone made the point that um, we are humans are the only mammals who, as adults, demand to have milk, basically. There's no other mammal on the planet which wants milk. It milks for babies and you get weaned and you don't go back. And lactose persistence, lactase persistence, sorry, is what most humans have. And that would be really unusual in the rest of the animal, the mammalian sort of family. So that made me think, well, okay, if mammals don't need milk, dairy products as adults, it can't really be essential for health for me. So that was a sort of, but it was, you know, that's wrapped up with what's natural and that kind of was connected to what I, what I thought was probably healthy uh, because it, in some ways it isn't uh, demanded by nature that I have milk as an adult mammal, so it can't be required for my health. So, you know, it's interesting that, especially in people's understanding or the public understanding of science, which is really interesting in relation to the health and the emission stuff on diet, 
the way people take up that knowledge is not you know it's connected to other stuff and their beliefs or myths you know less rationally about what's natural and um and 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 also to you know identity again you know sometimes your conceptions about what's healthy is wrapped up with what you think a natural person or a natural life for an animal is or a natural way for a man to be you know so they, these sort of topic areas sort of bleed into each other sometimes just out of curiosity um the people you were researching what was the overwhelming reason that they chose to to go on plant-based diets uh, was it more from an environmental perspective uh, an identity perspective or health what what did you see was the majority well it wasn't a huge sample because of the nature of the the work i was doing it wasn't like a sort of you know hundreds or thousands of people and then doing a quantitative analysis of this but the kind of pyramid of participants that i had and i say pyramid because a small number at the top were really prolific diarists and then they, they kind of i was interviewing for a long period um and then a sort of a widening base of people who i didn't collect so much material from so there was you know about 40 people in total and i kind of mapped out their most stated motivations as much as that was doable in a simple way but one of the interesting things was that those attempts to categorize vegetarians and vegans ultimately if you try to do that you come across uh, problems and a lot of previous work has tried to sort of come up with a typology of even just what you eat and that's problematic because i found people eating uh in well, typically these hierarchy the, the the typology would say well you eat up or down a hierarchy you exclude red meat then you exclude white meat then you exclude dairy then but people were actually eating say red meat but excluding dairy or they were eating no meat no fish no dairy but maybe they'd keep eggs so it was quite idiosyncratic sometimes and that was interesting from a, a contrasting point uh, to the idea of a neatly um sort of segmenting vegetarians and having a typology of a vegan always does this a vegetarian always does that and then you go from here and then you go down to being if you go from vegetarian to vegan usually so um it was the same with motivations as well quite idiosyncratic some people were sort of food intolerant um <clears throat> or suspected and and were trying so they were maybe lactose intolerant or they had IBS a couple of them and they they decided they were going to exclude dairy I mean the short answer is that the most common motivation was moral concern for animals they didn't feel good about animals um suffering and and, and being killed uh, unnecessarily for their food but health was a close or not too far behind second moral and then health and the health as I say kind of in, incorporated certain specific health issues they may or may may not have had um and of course it's over simplifying to sort of put them in moral or health because often it was both yeah. and it may have been some of them were concerned about sustainability as well i think the 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 best way of looking at motivation for dietary changes probably to sort of tick as many boxes as you can and not worry about even which is ranked higher and and in in terms of behavior change as well try and hit it on as many levels sometimes is the best kind of remove any objections they have you know and did you see a lot on potentially like fads of what's going on in society in terms of like recently there's the paleo diet and then there's mm. these other atkins diet and then there's just like these different new fad diets that 
keep coming across mm. and kind of touching on misconceptions. Um, yeah, at the time I was doing it, which was, um, well, around about the year 2000, was sort of the middle of what I was doing. I can't remember, or it didn't really come up that there was many fad diets at the time, and people didn't really talk about them too much. Um, certainly the issue of dieting and uh, people's experience with calorie-controlled diets and things came up a little bit, but it wasn't particularly significant there. There's something else you said I'm trying to remember I wanted to pick up on. Yeah, I think um, the fad diet thing is actually used sometimes as a, a kind of a, a rhetorical resource by people attacking vegetarianism as a sort of, you know, this is, this is a, a fad, just a fad diet, or a phase yeah. for a particular individual. Mm -hmm. And um, there may be fads, clearly, and there may be people doing it for various reasons, including just, you know, doing it because they have some attraction to this particular fad diet. But um, I think against the broader backdrop of, of a shift towards plant-based diets, it's a sort of um, less interesting for me personally. Mm. There's also... Um a lot of social movements in this space, whether it's on bigger scale, such as demonstrations, or even in universities like Meatless Mondays, mm. or even Veganuary. Do you think that these initiatives um, affect people's choices and people's identities? They're interesting in the sense that they, if they weren't there, people would, um, some people would, would not be trying going vegan for a month, or, or if that turns into longer, then... Uh, then longer they they kind of almost are a vehicle for people who who are sort of open to the idea and um not in a bad sense of a bandwagon but just a you know a useful vehicle uh, and a resource again a sort of rhetorical resource uh, a bit of culture that people can use uh which sort of legitimizes them i mean if veg veganuary didn't um, exist if you just sort of said i'm going vegan for january people might go oh Really? That's a bit weird. <laughs> why January and why why vegan? But if you sort of go, I'm doing the veganuary thing, then people go, oh, yeah, okay, I know, that's a thing, yeah. yeah. So yeah. it's a sort of a cover for you, and it's a sort of um, acceptance, and it's normalising. And, and also, you, by, by having this label, you know there's other people doing it. You maybe kind of have this sense of distant kind of connection and camaraderie in a shared group thing, uh, even if you're not all over the social media. Then it's a bit. It echoes a little bit what I noticed in my um, my diarist that they can use cultural sort of resources that are available to them, and sometimes they're traditional things like New Year's resolutions, which is sort of very traditional. Nothing really radical about that or counterculture, but they can use it and bend it back onto culture, if you like, and and subvert culture. So New Year's resolutions, um, they're not normally used for social movements and social change but you could use that as right for as a, as a, i mean a, in the sort of co conversion experiences sort of discourses around becoming vegetarianism becoming vegetarian or the the kind of people's stories which they often have about being vegetarian quite a few people would say on new year my new year's resolution was to to be vegetarian so that's when i chose to to start and it sort of reminds me of that a little bit that it's a sort of a, oh yeah i'll use that to do to become vegetarian that's what i've done with with red meat i've given up red meat given that from an environmental perspective it is you know even from a the low impact and high mm. impact production that it's it's the top emitter so how are you doing so far so far so good <laughs> it's the 22nd great yeah, if we had um, more time i'd ask you about the social interactions you've been having <laughs> <laughs> well i started to 
transition towards a plant-based diet in January, but I didn't make that my New Year's resolution or I didn't tell people because I thought that if I say, oh, it's my New Year's resolution, you know, I'm I'm trying to limit meat and not eat any um, red meat especially, and people would say, oh, it's a New Year's resolution, it's going to pass. So I was actually trying not to to get on that and mm. and to make it a permanent thing and yeah actually yeah. new year's resolutions have probably not got a good reputation mm. they they got a bit of a an association with something you do for a little while mm. and then stop yeah i just felt like i had to kind of justify why i was doing it you know and mm. i didn't really want it to be always just a new year's resolution it, i thought it's more than that but it, mm. it's interesting to you say that because i'm sure january is a good time for a lot of people to to um change their lives in one way or another and going vegan or vegetarian is definitely part of yeah. that i think whether it's new year or some other date um as a marker as a sort of a line in the sand sort of thing it's quite useful to say that's the date i'm going to mm-hmm. decide um i think i i used my birthday one for for being vegetarian <laughs> vegan um so yeah it's it's sometimes it's you know it has some value even if it's a bit arbitrary it just helps and and you said you haven't told anyone but sometimes when people tell people that they're doing it it's it's you have to do it now because you've told yeah. people so again yeah. it's a sort of a whether people do it knowingly or not um it's a sort of a um a thing you can use to bolster your commitment mm. you know? no i wasn't telling people that i was doing it as a new year's resolution uh, you i tell people you're doing it yes i well i didn't say i was vegetarian i said i don't eat meat because i just felt like there was a lot of stigma especially at the time i um i lived in hungary and it's not as exposed vegetarianism yeah. is not as not as exposed there and um i just i felt less attacked saying it that way um okay. but that's just a personal experience kind of shifting towards policy a little bit as we talked about social movements and media picking up on on the subject are governments tackling this in one way or another or are there any policy incentives i heard of the the meat tax a while ago uh but mm. as far as i know it hasn't come into effect especially in the uk it hasn't so far yeah i mean i think there's a, a i mean there is an argument for that for for a tax on meat um if you follow the logic of emissions and health costs um to society and, and, and emissions people do forget they have a cost in human and financial terms we will if we don't um mitigate climate effects um impacts we will end up paying later in uh you know adapting to the the new uh reality of the, the altered climate so there is a financial um and a human cost and a environmental cost so you know the logic is that you tax things you don't want to see um you tax bad things and hopefully um see less of that going on but in terms of public acceptability acceptance of um the tax on meat um there is a you know certainly a, uh, a risk that you would it would be counterproductive in a, even just in a strategic sort of sense of trying to shift societal uh practices and and diets so i personally don't think that that would be um it, it now is the right time for taxing meat um even though there is a case for us um i think looking from a behavior change point of view there's there's still um an issue of behavioral lock in basically when you people don't have um very much freedom to do something differently say if you live in the middle of nowhere and you have um a car and there's no bus service and there's no trains and it's 20 miles to work you're pretty much locked into driving to work you know 
Um, similarly, um, people could change their diet, absolutely, but it's not always very easy. And um, if they're not locked in, then they, they certainly have what is sometimes referred to as small choices, which is you don't have a choice of a, um, a work canteen or a restaurant or um, a school canteen or whatever it is, all the catering sort of facilities around you serving good vegan food. You basically have a choice of eating whatever they're serving, you know, meat, cheese based stuff or really going out of your way or making packed lunch or staying at home or going miles and miles to find a, a, a vegan cafe or something. So improving availability of, of plant-based food is, I think, the urgent and first step. And once you've widened the um, options and choices people have, then you can start to think about um, incentivizing what you would want to encourage as you know better choices. But for now, We've, there's, a, there's plenty to do in terms of um, improving the quality of, of plant-based foods and um, the availability. So you should be able to walk into somewhere and know that there's going to be uh, a vegan option or plant-based option. I think there's issues around which terminology you use. And um, we're, we're not there yet. I mean, prisons and hospitals, you um, generally speaking, can't expect to get um, plant-based food. If you're, if you're vegan, you, you'd have to really, you know, negotiate getting some vegan food and schools do but um, I found with my own kids that they have essentially their practices are divisive so you're either signed up to a special diet and you email special diets at you know catering company uh, and you're the, the kids locked into that and they have to eat special diet vegan food every day and the other kids can't have it even if they wanted it I mean my kids get raspberry smoothies for dessert and the other kids would have them but they're not allowed because they didn't go up, sign up for the vegan diet. Uh, I mean, my kids aren't vegan, but I wanted to know what was going on in the <laughs> school catering system. But um, um, yeah, so to um, kind of reiterate, broadening choices is an alternative and I think the best step right now. And then um, to use financial incentives later could even actually not go straight to taxing it. Um, but sort of looking at the subsidies that livestock agriculture receives and really making sure that the, the prices of uh, animal-based food, meat, dairy, etc., reflects the actual cost of production. And, you know, if there's an economy-wide carbon price attached to that, then, then great. Um, but just, you know, we shouldn't, be subs we shouldn't be subsidizing food, which we are at the same time getting other departments in government saying, uh, from a health point of view, we shouldn't be eating so much of this. You know, there, there needs to be cross-government sort of consistency on, on um, policy. There's a couple of things you, you touched upon that I thought were... Do you think, like, the vegan diet is is more expensive? Um, and then you've mentioned schools and prisons. I'm imagining that there's a huge government industry interaction with lobbying um, kind of for for meat and animal projects to to stay kind of where they are from an mm. you know, economics reason. And then, um, yeah, just kind of your thoughts on, on those two. And then it's it's already on the agenda in, in a few countries uh, like mm. Denmark and Sweden and Germany, but in terms of a meat tax. But then, sorry, circling back to <laughs> kind of replacements, uh, mm. there's things like 
um, meat substitutes and impossible burgers. And there's kind of a, a new market being created that I think uh, could be kind of an attractive thing as well. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that. Actually, I should have probably mentioned that um, on the policy side of things and, and examples. Yeah, in, in Germany, I mean, what I was what I was referring to when I said a broadened choices. Um, specifically, we could start as for policy um, from a policy perspective in the, in the public sector. So public sector menus, you know, hospital, schools, prisons, um, and local authorities and the kind of public sector rest sort of catering stuff, but also how they procure catering services. And in Germany, um, the um, German government has um, basically made of catering in parliament uh, default vegetarian, so there's no meat or fish in. Um, I think the whole of the um, German parliament catering, which again is something that could be done uh, in Portugal as well. There is They've, no meat absolutely in the in the government. No, so uh, if you have an event or? in the German. Oh, uh, if you have an event, okay. Yeah. I thought like in a catering or. Oh, well, a canteen maybe maybe that so. as well. Yeah, maybe in-house canteens mm. as well. I'm not sure of the details. But and, uh, that already sounds very progressive and. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, there has great. been a bit of pushback, obviously, but. Mm. Uh, and in Portugal, um, they have already uh, also legislated that um, prisons and hospitals and schools. Uh, must serve a, a, a vegan uh, option as well. So those are two concrete examples. So starting in the public sector, I think we need um, to um, make plant-based options available. And there's there's a couple of other benefits to that. One is, which are really key actually for a wider shift. One is that by having plant-based vegan options, the people who were vegetarian uh, and would have had a vegetarian very commonly quite cheese-based, <laughs> It's got a lot of cheese in vegetarian uh, stuff. They will now have an option of uh, a vegetarian option, which doesn't um, have cheese. So you could see um, them not because they're vegan, but you could see vegetarians um, eating from the, the the more plant-based side because they now have a better choice as well. Uh, and you know that's as well as to say the omnivore meat eaters moving further uh, away from their usual choices now that they have a better choice. But also by having things on the menu and having plant-based or vegan or whatever you want to call it options on the menu as a standard thing in you know starting in the public sector and, and well the, actually the, pub, the public sector is going to be catching up to the private because the private already is leading on this it will normalize you know eating plant-based foods so it would be really interesting from a social identity point of view it's one of the most i think the most valuable things that would come from improving uh, the availability and the you know the tastiness, the enjoyability, the quality of it, and if it's affordable as well, which you uh, mentioned as well, the price issue. So if it's if it's easily available, without kicking up a fuss and interrogating the waiter and appearing to be a real pain, um, then you're and it's not expensive, and it's uh, it's actually really tasty. Then some of those vegetarian vegan stereotypes are kind of really kind of diminished which is really important because they are also a barrier to people shifting. Um, people may be motivated by health and moral and environmental concerns, but they may anticipate or have experienced, you know, the social awkwardness which can, can happen when you have to really hunt down the food and then check and, you know, it doesn't look very good and you feel awkward because everyone's raving about their food and you're kind of not really enjoying your food and, you know, you're... <laughs> Yeah, so all this sort of social stigma, if you want to call it that, or or stereotypes which can be um, kind of lurking in the, 
background potentially, they will fade away if food, plant-based food is um, kind of normalized and available and, you know, enjoyable because if it's, it's really tasty food then you don't have to worry about the, uh, the, some of the dilemmas that we've discussed so much. So just one yep. thing, because I jotted it down, uh, <laughs> uh, the meat replacement stuff is really important, yeah. Um, in terms of behaviour shift, I think it's a, it's a much more believable scenario that people who are used to eating meat will be uh, happy to shift to a meat replacement, which is kind of analogous to what, they've, what they're used to. I mean, I actually eat probably too much, but I eat loads of kind of meat, fake meat type stuff. Um, and um, yeah, the price should come down once that um, production and um, kind of the market grows. Uh, and I think they have a really interesting role to play. And there's, there's, it seems like there's a uh, quite a pace of change in that area. Yeah, they they really could be viewed as essentially as a, a low carbon technology, really, just as PV has uh, and wind power has been in the power sector. Um, you know, why not just it doesn't make them sound very tasty when you talk about them as a <laughs> low carbon technology, but they are essentially doing that, uh, switching, um, say, coal-based power station to PV and wind, switching meat to meat replacement. You don't feel cheated when you turn on the light and it's renewable energy because it's still doing the same thing. If this is doing the same thing and you don't have to switch your cooking practices or it doesn't deliver a diminished kind of... Um, meal then I think it's really interesting and um, yeah a few years time we may be looking back and thinking yeah we've come a long way in terms of the the, the market growing hugely for meat meat replacements in in the you know this last few years yeah I think this is that's <laughs> glad you mentioned PV because I think this it's like the perfect sub segue to our, our final discussion which um, has to do with climate change in, in the environment and we wanted to ask you, do you believe that like renewable energy and technologies is a more commonly accepted solution to climate change versus diet where, mm. you know, the measured impact of, of diet is, is, is huge. So, yeah, yeah, it's a good question because um, on paper, it, it's clear that diet has been a sort of a, it's been it is a big impact uh, and it's a and it's, it's a an aspect of lifestyle which people could change although traditionally it is in the sort of previously the uh, segmentation that DEFRA did on possible environmentally responsible behaviors diet was in the sort of quadrant of the of the figure which was able to change but people are not willing to change um, and at a policy level as well it has been there's very very little attention being put on uh, looking at agriculture and diet and food and it's it's I guess only explicable probably because people seem to think that it's different in some way and it's more personal and it's wrapped up probably with you know largely because it's wrapped up with identities and in groups and out groups and you do see quite senior people sometimes commenting on I think it was a few months ago a comment on the idea on the idea of a meat tax and they go straight to stereotypes you know the policy makers are individuals they're human and um social identities and group group stuff group uh, memberships um, they come into play into people's thinking and from a logical rational point of view i think diet should be treated more uh, just like any other sector of the economy uh, and just like any other aspect of life but clearly you don't want to make the transition painful <laughs> and um, 
it's understandable to a degree, given as we've discussed all the sort of social, um, uh, the kind of it's a socially shared thing you do. You eat with people. It's a sort of it's embedded into your daily life. It's you know can um, be connected to your relationships, etc. In a way that um, the power sector isn't, you know. But I think we have to sort of check ourselves a bit and, and sort of say, well, yeah, we we need to actually look at it in a slightly less. Uh, uh, partisan sort of way and um, people have attitudes have changed towards renewable energy to the degree that people are really behind it now and I think we, we could underestimate the potential shift in attitudes um, and assume that people are going to be not open to change on diet whereas they, they may actually you know attitude change does happen uh, given the right environment um, I think it's very difficult to influence people's food choices and, and obviously governments can't tell you what to eat, what not to eat. So it also sounds like from what you're saying, the best that governments and institutions can do is to nudge people and provide little nudges that people can then hold on to and then go from there and implement changes in their lifestyle. Um, just a final question. This is kind of a question we ask every guest. You can interpret this from a personal, um, on a personal level or an institutional level. What do you think needs to happen for sustainability to pick up more and to and for us to actually uh, achieve a sustainable future or a path towards a sustainable future? This can be from any aspect of your experience. Okay, um, I think. Kind of continuing on from what we were we've been talking about that sort of I could just sort of add answer that by adding to the um, issue of dietary change. Um, yeah, nudges to a degree. I mean, one of the sort of the key sort of ideas really behind um, you know behavioural economic approaches to, to behaviour change is if you want to do uh, and you know this is sort of a, a quote if you want someone to do something make it easy and. That is something which has yet to be applied to in this area. It is not easy enough. And that's, as a first step, we should be doing that, making it easy. And that includes, you know, affordable and enjoyable, etc. And as I say, that'll have consequences for uh, on the social identity level as well, which will be removing other barriers. And how are we going to increase the sort of move, shift towards sustainable lifestyles? There's another um, quote um, the name's gone, but it's essentially the, it's, if, it's along the lines that um, if you want to challenge an existing way of doing things, you don't um, attack that, but just create something which makes it redundant. So it's, I suppose, the opposite of taxing meat. It's the sort of provide an alternative which is so good that the, the, the previous thing that you wanted to people to, um, to do less of just isn't. It just isn't the uh it isn't as attractive anymore so you know horse versus a more, car <laughs> yeah more of a carrot than a stick sort of approach um, and that can be quite a profound change it can be you know in this um sector of food it can be new products and services it can be sort of looking at how the the sort of supply chains and the what the routes to market are but just um make that happen so that people have a very easy choice to make uh, and it's the um it's the new choice, basically. Yeah, that's that's a great way to end the episode, and I think that's quite positive as well. Um, that there's a lot of optimism. Um, thank you so much for for coming today and sharing a lot of your thoughts and experiences. It's been great. Yeah, thank you. Uh, it was a great discussion. We really enjoyed it.
Thanks very much. Thank you for joining us on Green Minds at Imperial College. Check the show notes for our website and links to everything we talked about today. And don't forget to hit subscribe to stay up to date with all our episodes.